Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. The headline on uh, by Jessica, an article by Jessica, Jessica Schulberg over on Huffington Post, controversial Trump aide Catherine Gorka helped end funding for group that fights white supremacy. Uh, way back... Last January, the Department of Homeland Security officially awarded a $400,000 grant to a group called, uh, as part of its Countering Violent Extremism Program, to a group called Life After Hate, which works to de-radicalize neo-Nazis. Sebastian Quirk's wife, according to this article uh, in, the, uh, in the Huffington Post, uh, played a role in killing that. Uh, this is very strange. On the line with us is Tony McAleer. He is the, a former organizer with the White Aryan Resistance and currently the board chair and co-founder of lifeafterhate.org, the organization I was just telling you about that uh, Catherine Gorka is, uh, you know, helped defund. Uh, you can tweet him at lifeafterhate or at M-C-A-L-E-E-R. Uh, the website, lifeafterhate.org. Tony, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Um, you are right now running an organization that helps uh, uh, basically Nazis overcome their... Well I, it, well, I shouldn't be describing it. You, you should tell, tell me what your organization does. Well, we, we, help, we help people leave the place uh, where we once were. And the mission statement, um, which kind of describes sort of how we do it, uh, of Life After Hate, is to inspire individuals and communities to a place of compassion and forgiveness for themselves and for all people. And I think when we can get those two things in balance, um, uh, someone who has those in balance can't hold that type of ideology. 
So what took you into the white area and resistance and what got you out of it? Well, if you look at, if I go back and look at, at, at my life, you know, I came, you know, there's nothing that stands out um, as extraordinary. Um, you know, I was a, a white middle-class, upper middle-class kid. My father was a psychiatrist. Perhaps that explains it. Um, and, you know, I think I was, this, you know, if I look at who little Tony was, I was this bright, sensitive, curious, mischievous, a little stubborn and, and defiant little kid. Um, growing up in a, in a household in a school where it wasn't safe to be that. And at the age of 10, I walked in on my father with uh, another woman. And that was sort of when uh, the God fell off the pedestal, so to speak. And uh, my parents became all too human. And that left me really angry and and confused and and I started to uh, act out at school, and I went from a straight-A student in grade 5 to a C student in grade 6, and I went to an all-boys Catholic school, and my parents and the school and their wisdom decided that they came to an agreement that they would try and beat the grades into me. And if I didn't get an A or a B on, on uh, uh, major tests or assignments, I was marched down to the teacher's office and hit on the rear end with a yardstick. And in those moments over and over again in that office. I don't think I ever, even to this day, felt more powerless than I did then. And I went from listening to Queen and uh, and uh, Elton John to The Clash and The Sex Pistols and really, really angry and uh, disruptive at school and got into the punk scene and that led to um, to the skinhead scene. And, and the, the first skinheads I met actually wanted to robbed me from my Doc Martens. And uh, my bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. And um, in order for me to have their protection, uh, I had to have their respect. And in order for me to have their respect, I had to commit all the same acts of violence uh, that they did. But I felt powerful at the time. And I don't, I don't want to blame anything on my childhood. Everything I did, I chose to do. And I share with my childhood uh, to offer an insight into the lens through which I made those decisions. The analogy I like to use is, have you ever been to the grocery store when you're really hungry and you make those unhealthy choices? Oh, yeah. Very different choices than when you're healthy. I went out into the world as a young man emotionally hungry, and the choices I made um, were extremely harmful to society, harmful to all kinds of individuals, which I hurt with my violence and uh, communities that I hurt with my words. And, and it hurt me. I, you know, I remember, uh, quite vividly back in the, in the sixties and seventies, uh, Ted Patrick, uh, a friend of mine, Hilly Zeitlin, some other people, um, who worked to deprogram people who had been basically captured by cults like the Moonies and Guru Maharaji and, uh, you know, the, the perfect master, this, uh, 13 year old kid who, and all this stuff that, that, uh, you may be too young to remember, but, um, it strikes me that there are some parallels here between the kind of deprogramming they were doing and what you're doing or, or is there not a, 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 do you, do you see yourself as a deprogrammer or as a, as a safe place? And are you finding that most of the people that you're helping get out of the skinhead, Nazi, white, racist, white supremacist world have, you know, backstories similar to yours of a, you know, a childhood feeling disempowered and frightened. Um, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and, uh, for, for us to go in and try and tackle the ideology head on is a big challenge because at, at this point, you know, for myself and it, it's true for others, ideology and identity become intertwined. And if you attack someone's ideology 
that's in that place. You attack their identity and they shut down and, and you don't get anywhere. What we find, um, and, and the University of Maryland did a, a research uh, from their studies of terrorism and responses to terrorism program, and they found the number one correlated factor in the history of someone joining a violent extremist group was childhood trauma. And they were sort of talking about the physical side of childhood trauma, but I think it's more about the emotional side because you can have emotional trauma without a physical component. And I think what it does is it, to a young person uh, at a deep subconscious level, um, John Bradshaw is a great uh, author that I think explains it really well with his healing the shame that binds you. Um, we come out of a childhood with this toxic shame, the feeling that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not lovable, we're ins- insignificant. And we go out in the world and live our lives in reaction to that. And for him, um, toxic shame was the root of all addiction, but I think it's the root of all gangs. It's the root of a whole spectrum of antisocial outcomes of which violent extremism is one. We look at the young men who were arrested for the ISIS attacks in Brussels and Paris. We don't see people who were dedicated to Islam or people who found ISIS through the Koran. They were troubled youth. And I think it's, it's that sense of search for belonging, identity, community, and a sense of purpose where there is none. And the fuel behind that is shame. I think shame is the driver for both shame at an individual level and collective shame. I think Structural racism creates shame. Islamophobia creates shame. Overt racism creates shame. Bullying creates shame. And shame is the, you know, if you look at what is the opposite word to shame, and there's two that often come to mind, and it's pride and honor. And these movements are like a hyper-expression and an unhealthy false expression of, of pride and restoring lost honor. So how do you meet that need for pride and honor in people who are leaving an organization that lavishes it upon them and, and you know, gives them the opportunity to, to flaunt themselves on national television, as we saw this last weekend. Uh, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, it's the, the, opposite, the, the way to heal and the antidote to shame is compassion. Hmm. So we treat, we treat them with compassion and try to reconnect them to their humanity. Um, and, and it's a, like more of a healing process because I believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a reflection of how disconnected and dehumanized we are inside. And when we can make that reconnection happen, uh, then it's possible to recognize the humanity in others and it, it changes things. If I share with you the stories, um, and I'll share with you my own story of how we come back from that, um, compassion a story of compassion shows up, and it, it shows up in two major ways. One is the birth of a child, and anecdotally, I, it seems to be a female child. I think there's something about that feminine energy being introduced into the hypermasculine that that has a transformative effect. And children are safe to love. For me, it was safe for me to let down my guard and my shield and my mask of, of who I had become to protect that sensitive little Tony um, because they're they're incapable of of harming and shaming and ridiculing. It's, it's safe to love a child. It's a safe space to open up. And that began the thawing process for me. The second part um, was receiving compassion from someone who I didn't feel I deserved it from. And sort of about eight years after I had left the movement and the movement hadn't quite left me, I'd sort of still harbored uh, um, a lot of that stuff. I started doing some personal growth work and ego work and law of attraction stuff. And and uh, the, the guy who ran the course, I really connected with him, and, and he was also a counselor. So 
my friend for my birthday gave me a one-on-one counseling session and I'm sitting there telling him for the first time because I carried so much shame about the things that I had done. And, and when I had revealed in the past or people had found out in the past, I lost friendships and, and whole social circles. So I was always very guarded with this. And I spilled my guts to him and he, he looks at me and he starts smiling. And I look at him and I go, what, what's so funny? This is odd, right? This is my first therapy session and I didn't, wasn't expecting that reaction. And he, and, uh, he says, you know, I was born Jewish, right? And here's a man who I admire, respected, considered, uh, uh, you know, a, a friend, a man who loved me, wanted to see me heal, and, and offering me this compassion and seeing the human inside me when I was incapable of seeing it. Yet I had once advocated for the destruction of him and his people. That was mind-blowing. And these stories of compassion show up over and over and over again in the, in the stories of people that have left this type of hatred behind. When we're compassionate with someone, what we do is we hold up a mirror and we allow them to see the humanity that they don't normally see reflected back at them through our compassion. And when we can reconnect people to their humanity, the, the ideology doesn't make any sense anymore. The foundation of separation that, it, that holds it up disappears. That's remarkable. Uh, the organization is lifeafterhate.org, and uh, the, uh, you can tweet at lifeafterhate. Uh, Tony McAleer, former organizer with the White Aryan Resistance, now the board chair and co-founder of Life After Hate. And uh, they're in a bit of a pinch right now since uh, the Gorka family has essentially, apparently, according to this article in Huffington Post, gone after them. So I encourage you to check out their website, lifeafterhate.org. Org. Tony, thanks for dropping by today. Thank you very much. It's a good, powerful and compelling story. It's great talking. Oh, Richard Spencer uh, said that uh, has, has now come out this from uh, TPM, Matt Shuham. Uh, white in today's TPM, uh, white supremacist leader Richard Spencer asserted Monday that President Donald Trump wasn't being serious when he denounced hate groups by name. Uh, Spencer said at a press conference, you can say racism is evil. We should all love one another. The sun should always shine seven days a week. Everyone should be above average. Everyone should be a wonderful athlete. Everyone should love each other. It's just silliness. It's not serious. And I don't think anyone takes it seriously, including the president. Is what Richard Spencer, the you know, the, basically the head Nazi here in the United States had to say, or the guy who's doing the, you know, Sieg, Sieg Heil, or the hail victory with the, with the Nazi salute. Sieg Heil means hail victory. And, uh, yeah, and, and he also, yeah, exactly. He was also saying hail Trump. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, but the amazing thing to me, the absolutely amazing thing to me that I totally missed on Saturday was, you know, keep in mind, the entire thing in Charlottesville, and my apologies for calling it Charlotte yesterday. I, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and right down the road is Charlotte, Michigan. Anyhow, Char- the, 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 the main point of what happened in Charlottesville was these right-wing Nazis and, and Klan members protesting the removal of Robert E. Lee, their cherished history. The cherished history of the South is all over the right-wing and Nazi movements. This cher- and, and the so-called Confederate movement, this cherished history. And I totally missed when, when, Bu- when, when Bush, excuse me, when Trump on Saturday said this. This can happen. My administration 
is restoring the sacred bonds of loyalty between this nation and its citizens. But our citizens must also restore the bonds of trust and loyalty between one another. We must love each other, respect each other, and cherish our history. And cherish our history? Really? Cherish our history? I mean, it was just a, see, this is the sentence after the, you know, uh, all, you know, on all sides, right? When he said on all sides. And somehow they cut this part out when they play it on the news over and over again. Cherish our history was an open shout out that had to have been written by one of the one of the white nationalists in the White House. I mean, Donald Trump is not sophisticated or subtle enough to slip that in. And by the way, he gave this speech before Heather Heyer was was murdered. Cherish our history. Yes, you guys, you're you know, let's cherish that statue to Robert E. Lee, that treasonous, traitorous general. It's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing that, that you know, the rest, I, Jake Tapper pointed this out on Sunday, apparently. I, I found this just, you know, uh, duck, duck, going the thing. But as far as, and, but it just kind of went down, you know, never went beyond that. Trump was shout, shouting out. This is why he didn't want to say, you know, he didn't want to call them out by name. He was shouting out to them. These are his people. My shaves were super frustrating before Harry's came along. I just didn't get that close shave and smooth glide that Harry's provides. I use Harry's because it's the best shave for me. And now Louise is using Harry's too. She loves the smooth, close glide on her legs. Harry's is a high quality shave that's better for your face and your legs and your wallet. Great news. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades, they're giving you their set for free. Just cover the shipping. Free trial set includes ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades, the lubricating strip and the trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and the travel blade cover. I've partnered with Harry's to bring you this incredible offer. Head over to harrys.com slash Tom, that's T-H-O-M, to get it now. Get started with Harry's today and get their free trial offer. Guess what? It's free. Yes, all you cover is just a few bucks in shipping. To get your free trial set, including the handle, blade, shave gel, and travel blade cover, go over to harrys.com slash Tom. That's harrys, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash T-H-O-M. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. Harry's.com slash Tom. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. A couple of, just a, a couple of quick things. There's a, you know, the phone lines are all lit up. People want to talk about all kinds of stuff, and we will get to that in just a second. But there, there's, there's so much going on, um, so much news. I, I received an email from uh, Credo Action. Uh, it's uh, the, the website is credoaction.com, C-R-E-D-O action.com. Uh, and it says, fresh off renewing the racist war on drugs and boosting private prisons, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is now going after sick people. In a private letter to congressional leaders, now this is a, a letter that Sessions sent to Republicans in Congress. Sessions demanded permission to prosecute medical marijuana providers and patients. Uh, they point out in states where medical marijuana is permitted, fewer people get hooked on dangerous opioids. Sessions' dangerous crusade will put sick folks at risk and supercharge the opioid epidemic. Uh, he's going after sick people. 
Sessions personally requested that the Senate Appropriations Committee reject an amendment in place since 2014 that bans the Department of Justice, which is what Jeff Sessions runs, from interfering with states that permit medical marijuana distribution, use, or possession. In other words, if you are a legal medical marijuana user, Jeff Sessions wants to arrest you and put you in jail. He's coming for you. And he's asked the Republicans in the House of Representatives and the Senate to give him the power to do that. I don't know why this is not at the top of the news. This is pretty mind boggling stuff. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, just a, this is just kind of by way of uh, letting you know about some something that I thought was really cool. Uh, Code Pink, you know, uh, uh, Medea Benjamin's a frequent guest on our program. Code Pink is a great organization that I'm a big supporter of. And I, I wanted to go on this trip. I just we just have so much coming up between now and, and the end of the year that I, I'm not able to. Uh, in fact, Louise and I damn near did it, <laughs> but, but we just couldn't make it work. But they're they're planning a trip to Cuba in October around Halloween time. And uh, they say it will visit rural farms and urban co-ops, listen to some of the island's best musicians, visit the homes of fantastic artists, tour the medical school that trains students from around the world. Meet with representatives of the National Assembly, hear from brilliant professors and inspiring students, enjoy the world-famous beaches that Donald Trump doesn't want you to visit, get a spectacular tour of Havana, travel to the countryside, and more. And they're also going to have Trump's policies are scary blowout Halloween party with their Cuban partners, complete with the world's best music and mojitos. So if you want the information on that, get over to codepink.org. Uh, and, and finally, this... Well, not finally, I've got a whole bunch more stuff here, which we will get to as we continue through the program. But uh, have you ever heard of Directive 30? Directive 30, uh, Matthew Desim has a piece on Slate.com uh, today that's absolutely brilliant. And I, I was unfamiliar with this. And he reprints it. Directive 30 was issued in May of 1946. After, the, after World War II was over, this was a directive from the U.S. military, U.S., to the U.S. military and all the Germans in Germany. And it's, it basically, you know, on or after the date of this directive, the planning, designing, erection, installation, posting, or other display of any monument, memorial, poster, statue, edifice, street, or highway, name marker, emblem, tablet, or insignia, which tends to preserve and keep alive the German military tradition, to revive militarism or to commemorate the Nazi party or which is of such a nature as to glorify incidents of war and the functioning of military museums and exhibitions and the erection, installation or posting of other displays on a building or other structure of any of the same will be prohibited and declared illegal. Also prohibited and declared illegal the reopening of military museums and exhibition exhibitions. Every existing monument poster, statue, edifice, street or highway name marker, emblem, tablet, or insignia of a type, the planning, designing, erection, installation, posting, or other display of which is prohibited in paragraph one, which I just read to you, must be completely destroyed and liquidated by 1 January 1947. Also, all military museums and exhibitions must be closed and liquidated by 1 January 1947 throughout the entire German territory. And then after the 1st of January, after all this stuff has been destroyed, on or after 1 January 1947, the retention or display knowingly of any monument, memorial, poster, statue, edifice, military museum or exhibition, street or highway name marker, emblem, tablet or insignia, 
of a type, the planning, designing, erection, installation, or posting of or other display of which is prohibited by paragraph one and the destruction of which is required by paragraph two of this directive will be prohibited and declared illegal. Why the hell didn't we do this after the Civil War? We had a four-year war where a group of traitorous, treasonous slaveholders and, and uh, you know, who wanted to preserve the, the institution of slavery, which is exactly what North Carolina said in their secession document, or maybe it was South Carolina, in their secession document. It was South Carolina. Thank you, Troy. Uh, you know, it was all about slavery, they said. Why are we not going around and just simply destroying these monuments? This is, this is not anybody's heritage who is alive today. This is, this is a, a, an evil and dark part of our past. So anyhow, that's, that's a couple of things here. Pick up your phone calls. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Well, I, I sort of changed a bit what I wanted to say. I haven't heard anything from Donald Trump condemning as an act of terrorism the bombing of a uh, mosque in Bloomington, where the Mall of America is, it's a suburb of Minneapolis. And the only time he came here, and the only thing he ever said about the Somali community was very negative. Right. He came here, um, he was here about 15 minutes to the Humphrey Terminal, got off the plane and made some snarky comment about, uh, about Somalis. You know, so that that's one thing. Yeah. So and for people who also, don't realize or who don't know what you're talking about, there the, there are there's a large Somali community in Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, right. Some it's refugees, like, some some simply expats, but there's a and and Somalis, of course, from Somalia, uh, you know, which is part of Africa, are black and therefore, you know, you, you know, and and actually they got here because uh, they found that people in positions of power, like politicians, i.e. Rudy Perpich, and, and who was a governor, um, you know, he started the Center for the Victims of Torture. So this state has long been very welcoming, uh, either uh, through churches, NGOs, or even governmental agencies, to invite people from war-torn places. I think it was because you know, people who came here with nothing, who were basically pushed out of their homelands. There was like two classes in Norway or in Sweden or in other places, and they were just dirt poor, and they came here, and they were so happy that they, you know, uh, made it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, uh, and it's not my heritage at all. I, I'm Italian, part Jewish, and, and somewhat Scots-Irish. And, you know, but I've, I've always been impressed with, uh, you know, that bent in and the goodwill of people in uh, Minnesota. But I, I did want to speak a bit about Christianity and, and like, the KKK usurping uh, symbols of Christianity. And I think that the problem with Christianity, and I am a very devoted Christian, but I do see when it aligns itself with state power, and, you know, then it allows itself to be used, um, you know, and the, the idea of, the, you know, the apostles, when they went uh, to speak to the Colossians, uh, they accepted anything that was of good repute, was beautiful, was acceptable, art, literature, whatever it was that they produced. 
the liturgy, liturgy I celebrated today myself is built on, on the, the Jewish temple worship. So, you know, you know, Christianity started out very syncretic, and it, um, you know, it still should be that way. It shouldn't, uh, you know, true Christianity doesn't go in and, and you know, denigrate other people's religions. It, it takes from their religion, their philosophy, their culture, and it, it um, you know, works with that. That's what you're supposed to do. That's how they evangelized within the Roman Empire. It's only later on after Constantine and when, you know, it became church and state. Right. And if you even look at that dynamic, it's never been a very good one. In fact, in the Orthodox Church, in Russian Orthodox Church, they said that the uh, Romanovs sealed their fate when they usurped the power from the bishops, you know, way back, you know, this was, you know, way, way back, the Muscovites and, and uh, you know, these people did that. And, you know, it, it's always been a problem, and, you know, I, I guess it always will be. But I think it's part of our a cultural and maybe genetic makeup that we end up with, you know, a lot of violence. <laughs> we are just violent people, I guess, you know, really. Um, and it takes a lot, I think, for people to overcome that. I, I, I don't know what to say more about it. It's so complex. Yeah. No, I think I think you've said it all. And and all these crosses that you see and, and uh, you know, whatnot, uh, this, this neo-Christian iconic, iconography that the that these Nazis are using this is a total, absolutely right, John, total perversion of Christianity. And uh, these guys should be appalled. John, thank you so much for the call. We'll be right back. We're reading today from The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Schurer here on the Tom Harbin University uh, Book Club. This is from the foreword by Schurer. He writes, Though I lived and worked in the Third Reich during the first half of its brief life, watching at first hand Hitler, Adolf Hitler consolidate his power as dictator of a great but baffling nation and then lead it off to war and conquest, this personal experience would not have led me to attempt to write this book had there not occurred at the end of World War II, an event unique in history. This was the capture of most of the confidential archives of the German government and all its branches, including those of the Foreign Office, the Army and Navy, the National Socialist Party, and Heinrich Himmler's secret police. Never before, I believe, has such a vast treasure fallen into the hands of contemporary historians. Hitherto, the archives of a great state, even when it was defeated in war and its government overthrown by revolution, as happened to Germany and Russia in 1918, were preserved by it, and only those documents which served the interests of the subsequent ruling regime were ultimately published. The swift collapse of the Third Reich in the spring of 1945, however, resulted in the surrender not only of a vast bulk of its secret papers, but of other priceless materials, such as private diaries, highly secret speeches, conference reports, and correspondence, uh, and even transcripts of telephone conversations of the Nazi leaders tapped by a special office set up by Hermann Göring in the Air, Milita Air Ministry. General Franz Hodler Halder, for example, kept a voluminous diary jotted down in Gablesberger shorthand, not only from day to day, but from hour to hour throughout the day. It's a unique source of concise information for the period between August 14, 1939 and September 24, 1942, 
when he was chief of the army staff and in daily contact with Hitler and the other leaders of Nazi Germany. It is the most revealing of the German diaries, but there are others of great value, including those of Dr. Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda and close party associate of Hitler, and of General Alfred Jodl, uh, chief of operations of the high command of the armed forces. There are, that's the OKW. There are diaries of the OKW itself and of the Naval High Command. Indeed, the 60,000 files of the German Naval Archives, which were captured at Schloss Tambach near Coburg, contain practically all of the signals, ship's logs, diaries, memoranda, etc. of the German Navy from April 1945, when they were found, all the way back to 1868, when the modern German Navy was founded. The 485 tons of records of the German Foreign Foreign Office, captured by the U.S. First Army in various castles and mines in the Harz Mountains, just as they were about to be burned on orders from Berlin, cover not only the period of the Third Reich, but go back to the Weimar Republic, to the beginning of the Second Reich of Bismarck. For many years after the war, tons of Nazi documents laid sealed in a large U.S. Army warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia, our government showing no interest in even opening the packing cases to see what historical interest documents of historical interest might lie within them. Finally, in 1955, 10 years after their capture, thanks to the initiative of the American Historical Association and the generosity of a couple of private foundations, the Alexandria Papers were opened and a pitifully small group of scholars with an inadequate staff and equipment went to work to sift through them and photograph them before the government, which is a great hurry in this matter, returned them to Germany. They proved a rich find. So did such documents as the partial stenographic record of 51 Fuhrer conferences on the daily military situation as seen and discussed in Hitler's headquarters, and the fuller text of the Nazi warlord's table talk with his old party cronies and secretaries during the war. The first of these was rescued from the charred remains of some of Hitler's papers at Berchtesgarten by an intelligence officer of the U.S. 101st Airborne Division, and the second was found among Martin Bormann's papers. And he goes through and he lists some more of the stuff. And he says, I have not read, of course, all of the staggering amount of documentation. It would be far beyond the power of any single individual. But I've worked my way through a considerable part of it, slowed down as all toilers in this rich vineyard must be by the lack of any suitable indexes. It is quite remarkable how little those of us who were stationed in Germany during the Nazi time, Germanists, journalists and diplomats, really knew of what was going on behind the facade of the Third Reich. A totalitarian dictatorship, by its very nature, works in great secrecy and knows how to preserve that secrecy from the prying eyes of outsiders. It was easy enough to record and describe the bare, exciting, and often revolting events in the Third Reich. An Anschluss with Austria, the surrender of Chamberlain at Munich, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, the attacks on Poland, Scandinavia, the West, the Balkans and Russia, the horrors of the Nazi occupation and the concentration camps and the liquidation of the Jews. But the fateful decisions secretly made, the intrigues, the treachery, the motives, and the aberrations which led up to them, the parts played by the principal actors behind the scenes, the extent of the terror they exercised, and their technique of organizing it. All this and much more remained largely hidden from us until the secret German papers turned up. Some may think that it is much too early to try to write a history of the Third Reich, that such a task should be left to a later generation of writers to whom time has given perspective. I found this view especially prevalent in France when I did, went to do some research there. Nothing, nothing more recent than the Napoleonic error, I was told, should be tackled by writers of history. And then he goes on to kind of push back on that view. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer. 
Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And on the line with us is Greg Palace, the investigative journalist with Truth Out and Rolling Stone, author and filmmaker of the, uh, the new movie, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, uh, which you can find over at Amazon and other places. And uh, Greg Palast, of course, dot uh, com, Greg dot com, the website. And you can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast. Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Tom. It is always a pleasure and an honor to have you with with us, uh, my friend. Um, wow. So you have a, an 11 year long employee, a guy who's been working for you for a decade for the Palast uh, in investigative fund who was in Charlottesville, Virginia. Tell us the story. Zach Roberts, who does our undercover filming and shooting. Zach D. Roberts is a brilliant investigative journalist who went down to Charlottesville and he got something on camera that no one else seems to have gotten. There was a young black man, actually, he's a special ed teacher in his early 20s named DeAndre Harris. Um, he was walking along uh, the, the crowd of, of uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazis, his local school teacher, and just said, go home. You know, that was his big, big giant taunt. Go home. And um, they chased him down into a parking lot, a half a dozen neo-Nazis with weapons, iron rods, shields, and smashed him through a parking, you know, pushed him through a parking lot um, uh, entry arm. The, the lumber broke. He fell to the ground. They picked up the lumber and smashed him over the head. They hit him with the iron bars. Um, and then they started kicking him unconscious with their steel tip boots. And then uh, when some of his friends just courageously ran down against these, uh, these armed guys, um, they ran off, leaving one of their men uh, with a nine millimeter Glock pistol which he was going to take, uh, use on the rescuers, except that our man, Zach Roberts, was there filming the whole thing. Thank God he had his camera up. Then he pointed the gun at, at, uh, at uh, Zach, who then remembered at that moment that he'd forgotten his bulletproof vest in the car. Shame on you, Zach. But he got the shot. Thank God the guy realized that pulling, uh, pulling the trigger on a guy with a, uh, who would have it all on camera was not a wise idea. He... he uh, concealed the gun and, and uh, fled. This story, while it's gone viral through the net, and thank you, Tom, for putting it on your television show and now on radio, and um, these pictures are horrible. Yeah, These pictures could have been, if, in fact, Zach was thinking of turning them black and white, but he was afraid that, uh, which you usually do for newspapers, but he was afraid that uh, people would think this is just some old shot from 1964. Uh, and the Ku Klux Klan beating up uh, black protesters. This was just, it was horrible. And uh, the, the, uh, the later he was able to uh, um, try to get an ambulance to the young man and, and interviewed him later after he recovered a bit. Um, Have you had any nope. success in identifying yeah. the, 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 the assailants, these thugs who, who beat up this young black man? Well, that's interesting, Tom, that you would ask that, because I have read in the paper that the Justice Department under Jeff Beauregard Sessions is looking for the neo-Nazis that that uh, that are killing people. Um, <clears throat> we have not been contacted by the FBI, the Justice Department, nor even the Charlottesville Police Department, despite a complaint, despite a complaint being filed. By the way, our man was was threatened with a with a, uh, a semi-automatic weapon. Um We've gotten no contact. No <laughs> one seems to care. And you know what? And here's the problem. I mean, by the way, as uh, the palace, the investigative fund, our team would never give up uh, a source. But we're talking about 
We have super high resolution raw footage, which could help identify these guys. The FBI has the files. They have the information and um, and they don't care. They haven't contacted this kid. He's filed a complaint. No one cares. They, we contact the police. Nothing. Uh, FBI, nothing. Wow. Uh, this and here's the problem, except for uh, the, the wonderful Tom Hartman show, we're, we're getting basically uh, very little of the mainstream media noting that, yes, of course, it was much worse to have a neo-Nazi. Um, I don't know why they call him neo-Nazi. He's a Nazi who um, uh, ran over uh, a, a score of people killed uh, this young yeah, woman. Heather Heyer. But that, that is there, there's no comparison with pulling a gun. On uh, and 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 beating the the bejesus out of this uh, this black school teacher, but still, uh, the the important point here is that the, you know the the alt right so called the alt righteous like to play um, the car incident. Well, that's one crazy guy. Well, I'm sorry, this was the whole phalanx of their march descended on one young black man and beat him. If you, you, it's sickening to look at the photos, they're at GregPalace.com. I. I know that uh, I hope that you're putting them up or people yeah, go I've, to your I've site. Retweeted some of this stuff. Yes, absolutely. And because you have to see it to believe it. Um, yep. I know it's not easy to look at, but but please do, because you have to know what's going on in America and what and when. And, you know, our president said many, you know, there's violence on many sides. I the two sides I saw were the beaters and the kid that was being beaten and the guy with the gun and our guy with the camera. Now, yeah, there, what tell me about the many sides of the violence. Right. Yeah. Well, Trump also in the next sentence said we must cherish our history. Um, and the, of course, the, the, the so-called protests, I, I'd call it a riot, were all about, you know, protesting the loss of the, the statue of Robert E. Lee. I, 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 I think on Saturday, and this was before Heather Heyer was murdered, um, I think he was just shouting out to them. But yes, let me encourage everybody to get over to gregpalace.com, check it out, tweet it, Facebook it, share it, email it, let all your friends know. And and hopefully the Justice Department and and the Charlottesville police will uh, and the state of Virginia police will uh, show some interest in this. Uh, this is mind boggling. Greg, well, you're you're back. you're also uh, you know, somewhat of an expert on Venezuela and yes. that situation. Trump last week said uh, he's he's not ruling out military options in Venezuela. This is the first I've heard that we're on the brink of war with Venezuela. What the hell is going on down there? Okay, I actually talked to the late uh, President Hugo Chavez. He said, "I hope that that uh, what, at that time Bush is not so stupid as to kill all our children." That's the phrase he used. Wow! Kill all our children, and he met American children and Venezuelan children in a crazy operation. Look, Venezuela—it's it, it, a nation armed to the teeth, more armed than the United States, believe it or not. And you had, uh, um, you know, pro and anti-government uh, demonstrators all armed to the teeth. About 60 people have been killed on each side. It's horrible. But understand, it is still, even Jimmy Carter, who does not like the uh, Chavista regime, has said that they have the fairest elections in the Americas, uh, much more than the United States. And yes, uh, the uh, there was a, the, the people were very upset that without any oil money, the Price of oil has plummeted. No more social programs and all these wonderful things that that uh, this uh, incredible change in people's lives when the Chavez government gave out the oil wealth, which is brand new. It usually goes to Miami. He gave it out. But then the money ran out. Oil prices collapsed and the people got upset. They voted in an opposition Congress. By the way, they keep saying it's a dictatorship. I didn't know that dictators let the 
let the people vote in an opposition Congress. Then, uh, like in the U.S., when people voted in Trump, angry at Obamacare, it wasn't what they thought it would be. They're, they're angry and they voted in Trump. Suddenly, buyer's remorse, just as we see in the U.S., and there it took the form of a uh, petition for a constitutional convention, and they just had a vote on that, 8 million people, massive turnout for that vote. So it's a, it's a, it's a democracy, a thriving one, unfortunately, and sometimes a violent one. But the last thing that should ever happen is to take, take those few crazy people with guns and add now artillery and our military and I got to tell you one thing about uh, Venezuelans. I know people, by the way, not only do I, I by the way, um, uh, President Maduro uh, showed up in my office a few years ago to talk about those other options that Trump talked about. One of them was kidnapping the president, which they did in 2002, the last president. They literally kidnapped the president. And right. the U.S., by the way, here's a good one. The U.S. ambassador, when they kidnapped the president, ran down from the embassy and had his picture taken smiling with the hostage takers until they were arrested. Um, you know, that's one option. And assassination is another option. I was able to un uncover a plot to assassinate uh, then-President uh, Chavez. Now military options. I do know that uh, we stole, I, I was able in my investigations for, um, uh, for BBC television to uh, find out that the U.S. government had stolen the voter files of Venezuela. Now, I don't I'm not going to say what mischief they did with those voter files, because I don't know. I just know that the files of Venezuela were stolen by uh, U.S. Homeland Security. Wow. What for? You tell me. So, look, the last thing we want is even even the right wing regime of Colombia, the right wing regime of Argentina. They have all said, are you crazy? They literally told, um, you know, our dear Vice President Pence. Don't even discuss military options. We've had enough of military options in Latin America from the yeah. United States. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. This is extraordinary. This, it's it's and two absolutely extraordinary stories. What's going on in Venezuela? Uh, what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia over the weekend? Uh, get over to gregpalace.com. You can read all about it. You can tweet to Greg at Greg underscore palace. Nothing else. Say hi and thanks for being on our program. And and but, you know, share the good word. There's a lot of great information. And Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's always great talking. We'll be back. Hey, it's Tom with the Tom Hartman program. You know, I'm serious about my health and I'm doing something for it. You've heard me talking about Super Beats. I'm drinking Super Beats, a circulation superfood powder that helps support my heart and healthy blood pressure, too. I have amazing energy and stamina as well. The New York Times calls Beats fitness in a glass. With Super Beats, I get all the benefits of Beats without the bad taste or added sugar. Mix it in water or a smoothie for a jitter-free energy boost. You'll love the taste of Super Beats and feel results in as little as 20 minutes. Guaranteed to your money back. Try the original berry or black cherry. I love them both. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Only for the summer, you can try Super Beats for only $5.95. Here's how. Call now and get a free box of Super Beats with 10 packets to try and feel the results plus two free indicator strips for monitoring your nitric oxide levels before and after taking the Super Beats. It's just $5.95, and you'll love the results. Guaranteed. More energy, more stamina, support healthy circulation. What are you waiting for? Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to tomsbeats.com. That's tomsbeats.com.
Welcome back. Some other news. Somebody had called earlier and said, uh, you know, where are the veterans speaking out against Donald, uh, not, not just Donald Trump, speaking out against the, the, the Nazis and, and, and the, the, the racists and the Klan members in, in Charlottesville, West Virginia. The Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW, an organization that uh, my father and grandfather were both members of, uh, today issued this press release. On behalf of the nearly 1.7 million members of the Veterans of Foreign Wars of the United States and its auxiliary, we extend our deepest condolences to the families of Heather Heyer, Virginia State Police Lieutenant H.J. Cullen, and Trooper Burke M.M. Bates, and almost two dozen others who were injured Saturday when white nationalists clashed with counter-protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia. There is no reason or excuse great enough to justify violence against others just because you disagree with their ideology, backgrounds, religious beliefs, or ethnicities. Individuals and organizations who wave Nazi flags and who use the First Amendment as both shield and sword must be rooted out of our society and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for fueling hate. There is no place in any civilized society for their ilk. This is by Keith Harmon, the national commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Uh, they, they issued it as a press release today. I'm assuming it's also on their website at vfw.org. So there's that. Another story that, uh, well, actually, let me, let me just uh, follow up on this. The, the run them down. Uh, Henry Graybar wrote a, a fascinating piece that is on Slate, slate.com. And it's titled, Run Them Down, Driving Into Crowds of Protesters Was a Right-Wing Fantasy Long Before the Violence in Charlottesville. And uh, it starts out with a quote from ISIS's magazine, Rumaya, from last November. Quote, though being essential part of modern life, very few actually comprehend the deadly and destructive capability of the motor vehicle and its capacity for reaping large numbers of casualties if used in a premeditated manner. So ISIS is using cars to kill people, and they've done this in a, a half a dozen or more cities. Uh, run them over. This is, these are just a, a few quotes here from Henry Graybar's piece. That I encourage you to go over to Slate.com and check this out. Run them over as a popular and anti-Black Lives Matter catchphrase. Even police officers have felt comfortable expressing this sentiment in public. In July 2016, after a week during which Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were shot and killed by police, and Micah Xavier Johnson killed five Dallas police officers in an apparent act of revenge, an Oregon police officer was fired after he posted a photo of Black Lives Matter protest and wrote, quote, when encountering such mobs, remember there are three pedals on your floor. Push the right one all the way down. In January 2016, a police sergeant in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, was suspended after allegedly posting a comment on an article about MLK Day instructing drivers, quote, run them over, keep traffic flowing, and don't slow down for any of these idiots who try and block the street. This February, Troy Baker, president of the police union in Santa Fe, New Mexico, shared an image from the Prepare to Take America Back Facebook page, a right-wing meme factory, quote, all lives splatter. Nobody cares about your protest, it reads, over an image of a Jeep plow plowing through a crowd. On July 10th, 2016, the same day a South Carolina fire captain threatened to run over Black Lives Matter protesters who had shut down Interstate 126, an SUV driver in southern Illinois plowed through a group of BLM protesters after yelling, all lives matter, not blacks, all lives. Two days earlier, a driver had accelerated into a crowd of protesters outside the police department in Ferguson, Missouri. 
In January 2015, a Minneapolis driver lurched into a Ferguson Solidarity rally and ran over a 16-year-old girl. Across the country, Republican legislators have attempted to codify the idea that protesters surrender their rights when they stand on the road. And then he talks about Keith Kempenich, K-E-M-P-E-N-I-C-H, a trucking company CEO and North Dakota state legislator who has proposed a bill in the North Dakota House of Representatives to give immunity to drivers who unintentionally hit pedestrians on the road. Uh, The North Carolina House approved a similar bill in April. Lawmakers in Texas and Florida have proposed the same. And by the way, after uh, Heather Heyer was killed, a Massachusetts patrolman commented on Facebook, ha, 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 love this. Maybe people shouldn't block roadways. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. Running them down is not something new, and it's not just ISIS that's doing it. It's also the Klan. It's the the alt-right in the United States. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is one of the finest investigative reporters working in the United States, uh, Lee Fong, the investigative reporter with The Intercept. Theintercept.com is the website. You can tweet him at LHFANG or at The Intercept. And Lee, welcome back to the program. It's been too long since we've had you on. It's been way too long, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to hear your voice, my friend. Um, you wrote a piece that I, it just jo- dropped my jaw when I read it. It was, it was published a couple days ago, as I recall, over at TheIntercept.com. The title of it was Sphere of Influence, How American Libertarians Are Remaking Latin American Politics. We've seen the, 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 the kind of libertarian takeover of the Republican Party or infiltration of the Republican Party here in the United States, but Latin America, tell us the story. This is really the first look at a group called the Atlas Network. Um, this organization has been around since the early 80s, but essentially their purpose is to take these success, successful um, economic hard-right um, strategies for implementing those types of policies in the United States and the U.K., and to duplicate that method that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years here in country after country all over the world. Um, our piece takes a special focus on their efforts in Latin America, but what they've done is essentially taken the model of groups like the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute and their kind of um, orbit of, of media outlets and duplicated this process in countries like Brazil and Argentina, but also in, in Eastern Europe and in other parts of the developing world. So it, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a successful country, county, state, municipality that has operated along libertarian lines. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there have been a, a number of attempts, you know, the, the experiment with Chile that uh, Milton Friedman was behind, the uh, Donald Rumsfeld and L. Paul Bremer in Iraq, uh, you know, literally closing down the entire government, believing that the free market would magically fill that space. Uh, that didn't work out so well. But um, what's, you know, the, the way libertarianism seems to play out in the United States is it just moves us in the direction of oligarchy. What's the end game in Latin America? And 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 what do you think about my analysis of this? Well, you know, in, in one respect, this is kind of a long-running debate that kind of predates all, all these uh, these terms that we use, like like neoliberalism or economic libertarianism. You know, there's been a, an effort by the, the very wealthy in society to um, grab the gains of, of, 
of a, of a society and, and keep it for themselves. So, you know, these, these libertarian policies of tax cuts for the rich, mass privatization, attacks on um, uh, uh, voting and, and kind of mass democracy and, and labor unions, um, it, it's nothing new. But what the Atlas Network provides is kind of the... Um, the institutes that provide credibility for these ideas. You know, these these institutes are kind of designed to look very academic. They provide kind of an ideological and academic veneer to these ideas so that um, they seem uh, uh, more popular than they really are, and that it allows um, usually conservative politicians in these countries to then point to these third-party institutions and say, you know, if we're going to privatize, you know, the pension system, or we're going to privatize prisons and, and the education system, as they're trying to do in Brazil now. Um, uh, you know, it, it, these aren't ideas that simply benefit the very wealthy. Here, here, here's an independent third-party group that's making the recommendation. You know, and just like in the United States, um, there's kind of dark money financing efforts by the very wealthy and, and, and large industrial conglomerates to prop up these institutes. Um, but for you know the general public and for uh, the, the media. Um, it's very convenient to see kind of like what looks like a credible third-party think tank that's providing uh, these ideas and producing policy papers. Are, is this uh, these these uh, is it mostly so Central and South American billionaires and 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 multimillionaires who are financing this, or or is it American billionaires and multimillionaires? Yeah, that's a very interesting dynamic. Um, you know, there's been and, and and this my piece kind of touches on on, on the financing. You know, we don't know. The exact financing for every single one of these institutes, but we we figured out that um, despite all their anti-government uh, rhetoric, that uh, the State Department and USAID, the foreign um, aid arm of the U.S. government, has quietly partnered with libertarian uh, billionaires like the Koch brothers uh, in the United States to work through Atlas, the Atlas Network, to provide financing and startup financing to these. Uh, Latin American think tanks, which and and they, they train the leaders of these local institutes to then also also rely on local um, financing from uh, businesses in, in their home countries. So it's really a mix. It's a mix of Whoa. very kind of politically active foundations in the United States. It's um, the State Department, which is fund which are which is funding these institutes to kind of shape countries to be more friendly to U.S. interests, and um, local businessmen. Uh, from you know wherever the, the the institute is based. So you know in Brazil, uh, they're working with a, a lot of the the economic elite in that country. But for the the think tanks in Chile, uh, they 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 mix in financing from from local businesses there. Is is uh, does this have to do, or what does this have to do? I guess with uh, you know the the overthrow of the president of Brazil recently, the you know what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, the rise of right-wing governments. I mean, are, are, to what extent is is this ideology actually fueling uh, regime change or something close to it, as opposed to simply pushing government policies in one direction or the other? Well, you know, it, it's important to kind of um, acknowledge that there's no one dynamic um, driving the, the kind of political shifts that we're seeing in Latin America right now. It's really a mix. And and this is the kind of argument that the president of the Atlas Network, Alex Chaflin, uh, made to me when I interviewed him, you know, he, he, he can't take responsibility for the drop in commodity prices that has led to a lot of, you know, instability. That he can't take full responsibility uh, for the, the, the political scandals that have kind of swept countries like Brazil. But what he can do is, you know, provide a network of 
institutes that are all working together that when these crises do arise, can take advantage of them to push ideas that were once on the margins of society into the mainstream. So, you know, Brazil, um, their, their economy has had a, a downturn because of lower commodity prices. There's been the sprawling corruption scandal that has touched every single major political party, including the conservative parties. But a new Atlas Network-backed um, group of think tanks and institutes, um, about 13 of them in Brazil, have channeled public outrage only on, on the leftist politicians, only on Dilma Rousseff, and, and basically made the argument that the only way to fix Brazil is to get rid of socialist policies and to ignore you know, the corruption scandals that, that have affected the conservative parties and to, only get to, to encourage people to only get angry at um, politicians connected to the Workers' Party in Brazil. So they've really kind of skillfully um, exploited this crisis uh, for their own um, political goals. How is this different from the shock doctrine that Naomi Klein wrote about a number of years ago? Well, there are, there are many kind of interesting connections to that. You know, um, the Atlas Network was founded in 1981. Um, and, uh, you know, what Naomi Klein writes about is how, uh, the, you know, with the military coup and Operation Condor in countries like Chile um, and, and, and the kind of uh, attempt by libertarian economists from the University of Chicago to go down and use these countries in crisis as petri dishes to experiment with these massive um, libertarian policies. Uh, you know, the, the book is brilliant, and I recommend anyone, uh, any of your listeners to read it. Well, you know, the Atlas Network, years later, came in to, try to, to the, these very same countries, including Chile, uh, working with those same uh, group of University of Chicago economists to set up institutes to continue those reforms, to ensure that the ideas that were experimented with under Pinochet, for example, uh, would be continued to be pushed um, even after uh, Pinochet left. So, you know, Chile had a big presidential election um, this year. Sebastian uh, Peña, the very conservative candidate, has actually leaned on the same set of um, University of Chicago-style libertarian think tanks in Chile to uh, basically set up his cabinet of advisors. And, he's, and his advisors have already said, if uh, uh, Peña wins, um, he will lean on these on these same institutes to to go back to these types of uh, libertarian reforms. Some uh, year or two ago, Jimmy Carter was on this program, and uh, I asked him what he thought about um, Citizens United and and how it's affected democracy in the United States. And he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close. It went viral. It's easy to find on the internet. He said, basically, the United States is no longer a democracy. We are now an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery, uh, thanks to the Supreme Court. I would argue that that is the outcome of libertarian policies. To what extent should we simply start referring to so-called libertarianism as oligarchy? I mean, is, is it not that? No, I, I think we, should, we need a, a broader debate because I think a lot of people, you know, they take civil libertarian ideas like, you know, um, ending the drug war and, and, and uh, you know, marriage equality, and they equate them with economic libertarian ideas, which are really, I think, from an intellectual basis, completely different. Um, the, this is basically uh, an attempt to rebrand old, old-style ideas that are based in feudalism, that are, that are, are based in a, in a very hierarchical society. And we need a larger discussion about um, the problems we face. And, and unfortunately, I think the term libertarian throws people off because they, get, they mix up 
the economic libertarian side with the civil libertarian side. Yeah, and the and the economic libertarian side is really basically a scam, and the civil libertarian is, you know, oh, yeah, we'll throw you a bone, you know, gay people can get married, you know, we don't care, it's not going to hurt the billionaires. It's 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 amazing, it's absolutely amazing. Get over to theintercept.com and read this piece, Sphere of Influence, by Lee Fong, and uh, you, uh, check it out. This is absolutely brilliant reporting. Lee, thanks so much for being with us today. Tom, thank you for having me. Take care. Always great talking with you. We'll be back. Welcome back. Boy, what a day. There's so much going on here. Mike in Fort Collins, Colorado. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Well, um, I have a theory about uh, all of the uh, these right-wing senators and, and congressmen uh, denouncing Trump from what he said last weekend, and I think it's more self-preservation than anything. Oh, it's half self-preservation. Uh, and in the case of people like Cory Gardner and Marco Rubio, half they want to run for president in two years, three years. Right. Well, Cory Gardner was one. It was something that was a person that I wanted to bring up. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the Denver Post uh, had an article uh, that basically said that uh, the uh, uh, cows are coming home uh, or the the chickens are coming home to roost for Gardner, and I think he's realizing that what he's said and done in the past has um, is coming home to to haunt him. Um, they had a uh, they had a meeting uh, with uh, Gardner, uh, uh, Michael Bennett. Uh, Governor Hickenlooper and Zinke down in in Durango about the uh, the Gold King mine disaster here a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and and nobody asked a question about the uh, about the uh, the Gold King Gold King mine. Mm-hmm. They just peppered him with questions about uh, about the uh, uh, the ACA. So I think he's he's realizing that that his thoughts and actions of the past uh, uh, almost two years he's been in office are coming back to haunt him. And let us not forget, I mean, when Cory Gardner was first running for the United States Senate, uh, just prior to that, he had been an enthusiastic supporter of the personhood legislation. Personhood legislation basically says that, uh, you know, from the moment of conception, a, uh, a fertilized egg is a human being. And it is murder to, uh, to, you know, arguably take some kinds of birth control to uh, it would outlaw actually most types of birth control. It would outlaw, you know, all forms of abortion. And Cory Gardner was right there with those guys. And in the week before the election, uh, this just made me absolutely crazy. One of the uh, conservative journalists on NPR a national political reporter who had to get a waiver to be a Fox contributor, she's so conservative, um, went on NPR and said, oh, Cory Gardner is not in favor of the personhood amendment. He's a rational, normal guy, you know, and just whitewashed his background. And he won an election that was essentially a squeaker. And I think he, he, frankly, I think he won that because, you know, NPR has a hell of a throw uh, across the United States. And uh, it just it just horrified me. I went off on it several days in a row, you know, back then. But but uh, it, Cory Gardner is it, 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 looking from here and you live in Colorado. You tell me he looks to me like he's just ba- basically a naked opportunist. He'll say whatever it takes to get him elected. Oh, yeah. 
I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, is absolutely right, and you'll notice that uh, that um, uh, well, he if if you ever notice when when the turtles the turtle speaks, the guy on the far left uh, with the gray with the uh, salt and pepper hero that's Beth uh, Gardner who's right. sitting at uh, um, with Mitch McTurtle McCobb's shoulder who sits at the turtle's shoulder. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, he's a first-term senator and how close to power he's got and how quickly he's rising in the, in the Republican Party. You know, he's good-looking, he's white, he's got a good CV, uh, you know, of course. Mike, thanks for the call. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.